Hi, everybody. Welcome back. I just wanted to start this episode out really quickly with a thank you. And there's a review put out by Alchemy Zen. And I just want to say thank you so much for doing that. We really appreciate that. You know, I do read the reviews and, and look through those. Alchemy Zen had mentioned about my son and doing the fun kids explanation podcast that we really do enjoy being able to do that together. And it's always fun because I just never 100% know what he's going to ask me. I very much put on the spot when we talk about those things. So again, thank you so much for doing that. And I really appreciate anybody else who puts out a, a review for us as well. So thank you. So for today, this episode is actually going to be dedicated to my friend Moaning Myrtle and her moths. So Moaning Myrtle is a roughly one-year-old female cat who is super cute, like really cute markings, very petite. I did put a picture of her on YouTube if you guys are watching this on YouTube. And if not, you should definitely go over there and look. She's super adorable. And we're going to have some other pictures of some things as well. But I think she's roughly a year old because she was found as a stray. So she had to have her eye enucleated, which means that she had to have her eye removed. This is because when she was found, she had a really bad eye. So since then, though, she's been doing great. She found a great home. One of her moms is a veterinarian at our clinic. But her mom had noticed one day that she just urinated or peed outside of the litter box and brought her in thinking that she might just have a simple urinary tract infection. Well, when we get urine, um, so we use the ultrasound to be able to look at the bladder and then we use a needle that goes through the abdomen into the bladder to remove the urine. It seems like you would think that it would hurt, but I'm not sure they really don't notice. They don't move around very much when we do it. And then... The other hard part is like cats definitely do not pee on command. Sometimes we can get male dogs too, but even female dogs, it's a really hard thing to do. So this is the best way to get it. Plus also it's a very sterile way to get it. So we don't have to worry as much about other bacteria and stuff that makes that urine look like that there's a urinary tract infection when really there's not. But here's the thing. When she went to go look at the ultrasound to get the urine, she found something that she was not expecting there. So stay tuned to find out exactly what it is that turned this simple peeing once outside the litter box into an emergency flight to Colorado. So I'm going to let you know real quick that this is going to be a multi-part topic. And I'm super excited for this because actually we're going to be able to talk about uh, multiple aspects of this topic. So let's get back to Moaning Myrtle. So what they looked at her on ultrasound and found that she had looked at her bladder also found that her whole belly was full of fluid. So when they took a sample of that fluid, it was a very yellow straw-colored fluid, viscousy. So if you rubbed it in your fingers, it's going to feel a little sticky almost. This is not good, though. There are multiple things that can cause this. So we do have to run additional tests so we can rule things out, essentially. When we get blood work, we're looking at the protein values because if they are low in a very specific protein called albumin, that we know that the fluid leaking is into the abdomen. We also look at the blood work to look at the liver and the kidney values, just in case their organs are starting to fail or if there are other reasons that might cause them to be too leaky. We look at the fluid sample from the abdomen because we want to check to see if there's any bacteria, just in case that there's some sort of rupture of the intestines, or to look to see if there's a large amount of white blood cells to tell us that there's a lot of inflammation that's in the abdomen. We compare the urine to the blood because we're also looking for things like a ruptured bladder. We perform radiographs, also known as x-rays, because we're looking at the heart in case that there's some sort of heart failure. Her mom unfortunately knew what this is going to be, though. You see, 
since her mom is an emergency veterinarian, she knows that as soon as all those tests came back negative, this really just leaves this to be one thing, the one thing she didn't want it to be. So she sent out a panel, which means we took a sample of that fluid and she sent it out to the lab for something called an FIP PCR test. So let's break down what that means. FIP stands for feline infectious peritonitis. So feline pertains to cats, right? Infectious means that it's a disease that was passed from one cat to another. And then peritonitis means that there's some sort of inflammation of the peritoneum, or basically like the lining of the abdomen or the inside of the abdomen, like things like the lining of the intestines. FIP comes from a virus that's called feline coronavirus. And this is not the same coronavirus as what COVID is, if you were wondering. They are both coronaviruses, yes. But feline coronavirus is often called FCOV, and it does not affect humans. On the other hand, COVID, which is also called SARS-CoV-2, in rare cases can affect cats. Even though they're both a coronavirus, they are fairly different, though. In FIP, remember that stands for feline. So that means that this virus affects not just our domestic cats or like essentially our pets. It can also affect wild cats as well. So it can affect lions, tigers, ligers, bobcats. Like it, it can affect any sort of feline. Now, remember we talked about the I in FIP stands for infectious. You know, this means that the cats can get the disease from somebody else, but it's a little more complicated than that. So cats can transmit coronavirus. Remember, I told you that's the starting point of FIP. But they cannot transmit FIP itself. So we're going to talk about why FIP is not transmitted by in just a minute. But we're going to talk about coronavirus first. So this is usually passed from mom. Mom calls a queen to her kittens. So the mom usually spreads it to her kittens at around five to eight weeks old. This is when mom's immunity in the kittens is starting to go down. And the kitten's immunity is starting to go up and have its own immunity to problems. But we have this weird little five-day week-old period to where the kitten could definitely get coronavirus. Coronavirus in cats is usually found in the GI tract, or basically means in the intestines, and commonly known as feline enteric coronavirus. Enteric just means um, intestines, essentially. Most cats who get coronavirus, though, you wouldn't even know. They don't even show any symptoms. So therefore, you would never know that they actually had coronavirus. Some of them will have like small amounts of diarrhea or maybe an upper respiratory tract infection, but they recover pretty quickly. And typically, they don't even need medication for these symptoms. They usually just resolve on their own. When a cat gets coronavirus, their own body creates this immune response. It tells the body to get rid of that virus and be able to recognize it in the future. So it's like an army. So like you have your first defense in the army, it goes to the bad guys, it goes to the, the, the opposing side, and it knows that these are the people that they're supposed to attack, right? Sometimes they'll even put up like posters, pictures, but like this is the person we need to attack. So that's your body's way of knowing like this is something that's wrong, it should not be in your body, and it goes and attacks it. This usually occurs within the first five to seven days of becoming infected. So so your body responds to it pretty quickly. Now, like I said, most cats will be able to fight off this coronavirus, but about 10% of cats with coronavirus will actually have coronavirus mutate inside them or basically change. It causes them to go and infect the same white blood cells that are supposed to be getting rid of that virus. 
white blood cells are the things that are like those soldiers that are supposed to be attacking whatever foreign object, virus, bacteria, whatever it is that's coming to the system. So instead, these viruses are going into the white blood cell to mask themselves. So the body just sees that there's a white blood cell. It doesn't see it as a virus. And when this mutation occurs, this is when coronavirus changes to FIP. Now, FIP can spread throughout the whole body. So it can affect any part of the body. Those white blood cells, they move through the blood vessels alongside the red blood cells. So it makes it easy for them to go to other places like other tissues. When the body realizes this is what's happening, obviously they're pretty angry. They're like, you've had this Trojan horse that came in, right? Now we have this virus that's everywhere and we got to get rid of it. So the body pulls out all the stops, creates an intense inflammatory response to this FIP in those blood vessels, which then go to lots of different tissues, right? So that inflammation occurs in the abdomen, the kidneys, the brain even. It can occur to other weird places too, like the eyes. This can occur over like weeks to months or even years after becoming infected. It's time to the white blood cells figure out that that virus is there. That's when we start creating an immune response. Now, lots of cats have coronavirus, like I said, and only about 10% of them who have coronavirus will get FIP. But of those who have FIP, about 70% of those are younger than a year and a half. So they're usually pretty young. If that sounds familiar with Moaning Myrtle, I told you she was roughly a year old, right? Other cats that are more susceptible to this coronavirus and FIP are cats who are housed in really high populations, like catteries or in shelters, because kittens are more likely to be exposed in that situation. Any age cat can get this. And in fact, for some unknown reason, purebred cats tend to get this more, male cats get to, tend to get this more, and geriatric cats can get this a little more often than just adult cats. Even though the most common time to get this is at about under a year and a half old. There are lots of thoughts as to why maybe purebred cats and geriatric cats can be more affected. On the purebred cats, it's thought because that there could be lots of cats that are in the breeding facilities that they're more likely to be able to spread it because it's like a cattery still. And then with geriatric cats, we just assume that they're more affected because their immune system is really too weak to fight off these other infections. So let's talk about the symptoms of FIP. Now, there are actually two types of FIP. We call them either the effusive form or the wet form and the non-effusive form or the dry form. I'll just refer to them as the wet and dry form. I just feel like that's much easier. So at first, both forms will show up with kind of the same symptoms. The cat might have loss of appetite, lose weight, become depressed, maybe have a fever. In Moaning Myrtle's case, she actually just urinated outside of the litter box, right? The wet form of FIP quickly progresses from there, though. It progresses to just fluid being either in the abdomen or the belly, basically, or in the thorax, meaning the chest. If it's in the abdomen or the belly, um, it can actually make them look like they have this really pot-bellied appearance. In either the fluid in the abdomen or the chest, the fluid can become like so much, like it can build up so much fluid in there and it even makes it really difficult for them to breathe. So when we remove the fluid, you usually you'll see this yellow kind of sticky fluid, just like I talked about in Winnie Myrtle's case. Now in dry FIP, the symptoms are not as easy to recognize. They are usually neurological signs like seizures, or they might look like they're drunk when they're walking. We call that ataxia. 
And these usually develop a lot slower than that wet form does. If I see a cat who has seizures or ataxia, that's that wobbliness. There's a lot of other differentials that I have before FIP that I have to start thinking about. Things like toxins and meningitis, which I've covered previously, to an infection of the brain, or, or epilepsy, or even a brain tumor. But FIP, dry form of FIP, is on that list as well. So let's talk about testing. Here's one of the sucky things about FIP. There's really no definitive test, unfortunately, especially in the dry form. We can perform what's called a coronavirus titer, which means that we can test for like how much coronavirus is in their system. Even though they might have a really high coronavirus titer, it doesn't mean that they have FIP. It just means that they have the coronavirus. Because remember, FIP has to mutate. So it can't just be that it has coronavirus. So if they do have coronavirus and I'm concerned that it might be FIP, that makes it a little bit higher on my list. But if the coronavirus test comes back negative, then I'm less concerned that it's going to be FIP. There is also a test called a PCR, which basically looks for the DNA of the virus. You can use tissues like from the brain or the eye or the kidney, whatever is affected. But these are really invasive things, right? If it's the wet form, you can use the fluid from the abdomen or the chest and run a PCR on that, which is fantastic. If it's the dry form, though, this really isn't a great test. The fluid that they obtained from Morning Myrtle, it was submitted to the lab for the PCR that we talked about earlier, and it did come back as positive for coronavirus and for FIP. So let's talk about treatment. Here is our second sucky thing. So for my entire career, until just recently, FIP was considered a non-treatable disease, and I would highly recommend euthanasia for them because the chances of them making it through that with hospitalization and everything was only about a 5% chance. 95% of them were going to, to pass away, unfortunately. There have been some breakthroughs, though, and really this happened because of COVID. We always talk about all these terrible things that COVID, you know, that COVID did, which it was terrible, but actually had a really cool thing that came from it. So people often know of the drug called remdesivir, which is also known as GS5734, which was used for a lot of patients who had these severe COVID signs. There's another drug that's like similar to remdesivir. Uh, it's currently called GS441524. And it, they both have really high success rates with COVID patients. They are an antiviral medication, so it fights against viruses. But it also has a really high success rate for treating FIP. So about 80 to 100% of cats were cured just by giving this medication. It's a much lower rate for dry FIP, though. Only about 25% were working for, for dry FIP. But an 80-100% chance of curing the cat who has wet FIP is pretty amazing. Now, here's the third big problem. One, testing is not great. Two, we didn't have any treatment for this until COVID. The three is this drug is not FDA approved, and therefore it is illegal for us as a veterinarian to prescribe it. So FDA, that stands for the Food and Drug Administration. And they're responsible for ensuring the safety and efficacy of like human and veterinary drugs. And they do other things as well, looking at food, medical devices, things like that. So the company who got remdesivir approved 
for severely ill COVID patients. They were not able to get approval for the other compounds and really this is not a full approval. And they did not get it for approval for any veterinary use either because they're worried that if there was some sort of like undesirable effect that was discovered, then remdesivir would not be able to be used for humans. So since remdesivir is only conditionally approved for emergency use in humans, not fully FDA approved, that means that it cannot be used off-label by us as a veterinarian. So it means that it is illegal for me to prescribe it or to use it for a cat. So studies have been done though at universities because it doesn't have to be prescribed in those settings. It's not prescribed by a veterinarian, it's used for a study. So in these studies at these universities, they're trying to prove these medications are useful for cats, but it does not guarantee that the drug is gonna be approved for veterinary use. Ideally, both these drugs will be approved for veterinary use and specifically FDA approved for cats. But even if they just have a full approval for use in, vet in humans, then it would allow veterinarians to legally prescribe these medications off-label, which means that the drug isn't licensed for an animal. They didn't say specifically it's okay for animals, but at that point, we still can prescribe it. So how do we get these drugs that, you know, can drastically change the outcome from 95% chance that they're going to die to an 80 to 100% chance that they're going to survive? There are a few ways. Um, the most common way used to be that people would go to a specific Facebook page. I'm not going to see where. Uh, but they would get their medication by these people who would purchase remdesivir from people from other countries. And they would be shipped in a vial, which had no, it didn't say what it was. There's no label or anything. Those people would then pass these vials on to the next cats who had FIP to give them. But there's a lot of problems with that. So it's unlabeled. We have no way to know what that is. We don't know if it's remdesivir in there or not, or some other drug or some other compound. There's no way to know. And it could be detrimental by giving it. We can't test it, so we just don't know. So for a while, people had to just take their chances. They had to hope that they got the drug that is the correct drug and somebody didn't mess with them by selling them a drug that wasn't the correct drug that's going to kill their cat anyways. That's a hard thing to go through because you just don't know. But if it's going to give you any sort of a chance, better than a 5% chance that they're going to make it, then, then definitely that was a way that people were turning to. Luckily, that is not the only way now, though. There are some trials at veterinary teaching hospitals that are going on. They use these drugs to determine the effects on cats with FIP, any side effects that may occur, when you should give them, other drugs you should give them with. So... We have something that's happening at least. These drugs have shown great results in the laboratories. Now they're like trying to reach out to pet parents to get other factors going as far as like pills versus injectables and all sorts of things. Colorado State University is doing one right now. I believe it's Dr. Sierna. I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing your name, but I think it's Sierna or Serna is heading up a study to see if this other drug called molnupiravir or EIDD2801, which is something that helps stimulate the immune response. She's trying to see if that can be given orally or by mouth with the remdesivir to see if it can cause a faster recovery of clinical signs. She also wants to see if it improves blood work abnormalities and then also to see if it lowers the rate of cats relapsing back into FIP after treatment had been completed. All the cats get remdesivir still in the study, 
but only some of them will get the molnupiravir, which is, like I said, an, an immune stimulant. So it increases the body's immune response to COVID in humans. In humans, it was found to introduce errors into the COVID virus genetic code. So it makes it to where the COVID virus cannot mutate as well, or it cannot become as virulent as bad. The great thing about this study is that every animal still gets the medication to help clear FIP. The cost of the drugs, exam fee, the testing, and the blood work are all covered in this 12-week study. You do have to get your cat there, though. That's the biggest problem. So you got to keep your cat there by plane, car, whatever it is. And this is a very fast thing. You need to get them in as quick as possible after they've been diagnosed. The longer the FIP goes on, the less likely they're going to make it to that appointment. There are some eligibility criteria that your cat would have to meet, though. And I'll link the website to the show notes. So that if you're considering it, you should just make sure that your cat does fit that criteria. You would have to return to Colorado at four weeks, eight weeks, and 12-week mark. So that means you have to go four times. So the initial visit, four weeks, eight weeks, 12 weeks. That way that you can recheck the cat and then also recheck blood work as well. Unfortunately, you can't just send in the samples. Like they actually do have to be there. The deadline for this study is December 31st of 2024. So we do have a whole year pretty much from this podcast or essentially 11 months to be able to try to get cats in. And there's always new trials that are coming up. So you can always like Google to see if there's any new trials at any vet hospitals near you. But at this time, Colorado was the only one that I could find that was an active one. This is the study that Moni Myrtle is in. So therefore, we'll be able to get updates on how she's doing with this medication. And so far, it sounds like she's doing fantastic. So now you might be thinking, why do we care about this disease? It only affects 10% of cats that even have coronavirus in the first place. First of all, if I could save even those 10% cats with just a pill, that would be freaking amazing, right? If I could not have to tell people there's a 95% chance your cat is going to die, then I would rather not do that. I'd rather say, here's a pill that you're going to take for a week and we're going to save your cat. But second, uh, because there is something that happened last year, the beginning of 2023, that kind of made us rethink whether FIP is actually transmittable or not, and not just coronavirus that mutated. So there's this island in the Mediterranean called Cyprus, and it's really famous for these free-roaming cats. Sounds like my son's paradise. He loves cats, and I'm sure he would love to live here. It's just cats roaming everywhere. But it's a little, little paradise island for our cats, essentially. Within the first few months of 2023, there was a 40-fold increase in the number of cats who developed FIP on the island. So researchers have postulated that together with this like new coronavirus and a mutated FIP, that they can become a single pathogen or single new virus that created an FIP that can now be spread through infection. And it can be directly transmitted from one cat to another, and not that it has to be coronavirus transmitted from one cat to another that then mutates. It is actually FIP that is translated from one cat to another. This is not definitive at this point. This is just a theory. And if this happens, though, then it will make it so that that 10% of cats who get FIP will skyrocket and will absolutely need these medications in order to be able to help our cats. One other thing I have to mention about these medications, there have been a few cats that did develop this like weird bladder stone. 
after analyzing these bladderstones, they had looked into all these cats' histories and then found that these cats had stones that were as a result of the cats all being given remdesivir or that similar drug GS441524. This is only a few cats, though, that have gotten this. And honestly, I'd rather risk having to do surgery on a cat who's alive to remove these stones in a little while versus having a cat that didn't make it because they died from FIP. So as I said in the beginning, this is the first part of this series. We will be talking to Moaning Myrtle's mom. Very excited about that. About what happened from diagnosis to finding this trial to flying out to Colorado and her experience there. And then how she's been doing with her medications and her experience with the medication. Um, as she goes through and does her follow-ups, hopefully we'll get some updates on those as well. And then I'm also hoping that we're going to be able to speak to the doctor who's running the study. So we can just talk to her about enrollment and um, what this study really means. All right, guys, now we're going to do our animal fact for the day. So today we're going to be talking about the largest rodent of the world, which is the capybara. The best way to describe them is that they do look like a giant brown uh, guinea pig, essentially. They actually are related to guinea pigs as they're both in the cavy family. They weigh somewhere between 77 to 145 pounds. That is bigger than my Great Dane. My Great Dane is 110 pounds. That's pretty, pretty gigantic for a rodent. And they can be as high as two feet high from the bottom of their feet to essentially their shoulders. They're basically like twice the size of a beaver too. They're found in South America where they live in both these really dense forests, but also the savannas. And randomly, they've been found in a small group in Florida because apparently everything can survive in Florida. They often can be found in places like big bodies of water or small bodies of water, like lakes, rivers, swamps. They're herbivores, meaning they eat plants, but they also prefer to eat aquatic plants. They do eat other things like certain types of grasses. They're very picky about their grasses, as well as like fruit and tree bark. It's really funny that they're so picky about grasses, but they'll eat tree bark, right? You don't usually think of a guinea pig being aquatic, but capybaras are actually semi-aquatic. They have webbed feet, so they're great for swimming. And their fur is really, it's, it's almost stringy and tough. Like, you know, on those fake brooms and stuff that you get for Halloween, like it almost feels like that kind of material. Like it's very wiry. That's a good word. So their, their fur is almost like wiry, which is really good for how the fur dries. It helps it dry very quickly. They can swim underwater and hold their breath for almost five minutes at a time. And they even sleep in the water sometimes. They take naps in there. On their head, their eyes, ears, and nose are all on the top of their head. That allows them to rest their head on the bank of the water sitting there while the rest of their body is in the water. Yeah, so, that, so it allows them to watch out for most of their predators. Most of the predators are ones that are on land. So jaguars, ocelots, and pumas. But the most common underwater predator is going to be the green anaconda and caimans, which are kind of like an alligator. But they also have predators in the air as well. Eagles will also try to get them too. My son Oren and I had talked before about guinea pigs and how they require extra vitamin C in their diet. And cabin bears need the same thing. If they don't get enough vitamin C, they can get scurvy, just like what sailors got a long time ago when they didn't have any fruit and oranges on, the, on board. Speaking of extra things that they eat, they do also do something called autocaprophagia, which means that they eat their own feces. 
They usually do this in the morning. Rabbits do this as well because their feces contains a lot of bacteria in it and it helps them digest the plant material that they normally eat. They're really social animals, so they prefer to be in groups. And sometimes you'll even find them in groups of like up to 40 animals at a time. They're also really social with other animals as well. So they've been known to be the moving chairs because they have like birds and rabbits and monkeys even that just sit on them and ride on them. Usually it's for some sort of symbiotic relationship though. Like with birds, the birds will pick off a lot of the parasites. Helping the capybara, the bird gets to eat those insects then. People will even sometimes keep these guys as pets because they're actually so social. They can be found in the United States, but they are illegal in some states. And if they are kept, they really shouldn't be kept alone. They should be kept at least in a pair so that they don't feel lonely. They are also really vocal animals. So they do a variety of things like purring and barking, cackling, whistling, squealing, whining, grunting, and even like teeth chattering to communicate with each other, which is a very common thing with guinea pigs as well. All right, guys, that is my talk on FIP and on capybaras. So if you have any questions, you know, as always, please email me or find me on Facebook um, or Instagram. I am going to be talking to uh, Moni Myrtle's mom soon here so we can talk about how she's doing and how everything went and what she had to go through so far. And then, as always, if you have somebody else who is really interested in animals, who loves animals as much as we do, please share this podcast with somebody and then hit like and subscribe. We really appreciate that. We want to make sure we can keep our podcast going so we can just help as many animal and pet parents as possible. All right. Thank you, everybody. And as always, please keep your pet happy, safe, and healthy. Bye, guys. Hey, guys, real quick, I do have an addendum to make to this. So, you know, studies are always kind of hard to read what exactly their goal is and what exactly medications they're using and stuff. And I thought that I had understood which medications were being used. So I just want to go back to the study that they're doing at Colorado State. So they're not actually using remdesivir for it. They're actually using the other drug, molnupivir. These are so hard to say, sorry. So they're using that as their antiviral medication. And then they're using a different drug as an immunostimulant. So all the cats are going to be getting the molnupivir monupiravir, there we go, but only some of them will be getting the immunostimulant, meaning something that's going to help stimulate their immune system to see if they get over FIP faster and to see if they have less rebound or less reoccurrence of this. The other half are going to be getting just a placebo, so just meaning just a medication that's not going to do anything for them. So they're still both getting the antiviral medication but like I said, only one group is going to be getting the immunostimulant. So something to try to see if it helps them get over this faster. The other thing about the study is that it's going on for the whole year, but they do have limited spots for this. So it's not going to be like literally you could get in probably in December. Like it's going to be limited spots. But like I said, there's always studies going on. So I always suggest like going online to see if you can find a study that's going on now, whenever you're listening to this podcast to see if you could find one to be able to get them into the study, to be able to get them the medication. All right. Thank you guys. I'm sorry about that. Like I said, it's not always easy to kind of figure all of these things out, especially when I'm not the one doing the study. So, all right. If you have any questions again, please always let me know. Thanks guys.